If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Psalm 144 tonight. Psalm 144, as we uh, retreat to the Old Testament, to this book of Psalms, Psalm 144, we'll read in just a moment. Uh, I've entitled the message tonight, The Warrior's Psalm. The Warrior's Psalm. You may say, well, wait a minute, I know we got a lot of, a lot of warriors in the crowd, right? we got uh, maybe active, and maybe retired warriors. Yes, there is maybe some relevance to that, um, but I also want to speak to the group as a whole. And if you're not familiar with the fact that we have been called to fight as Christians, a spiritual warfare, I want to remind you of some of the verses before we get into the psalm. I just want to highlight a few. From Ephesians chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, just, just track with me for a moment and you can see several verses over and over. There's a pattern in the New Testament that there is a spiritual warfare and a fight that we as Christians are called to fight. So Ephesians chapter 6 is 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. Finally, and to this epistle, this is what he's saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3, The Lord is faithful that He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world, but on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish arguments and even pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And it goes on and on. First Peter chapter 5. Be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, pours, prowls around like a roaring lion. James talks about submitting ourselves to God and resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, more than conquerors in him that loved us. Uh, from Romans, I mean, there is this, this ongoing theme throughout both the Old Testament. Very vivid when you think about the nation of Israel conquering the enemies in the promised land and, and trying to retain a, the, the hold of the land that God had given them all the way through to the New Testament where it becomes more of a spiritual warfare that we're fighting and we, we need to be, be engaged in battle. And so I, I think there's an, an incredible relevancy here, not just talking to the Marines or the sailors and the warriors in the crowd, all right, but to each one of us who have been called to fight the good fight, the spiritual warfare that we're in. So... With that, let's go to Psalm 144, and you'll see just from the first verse where this is going. Psalm 144 begins, and we'll just read the first two verses, but we are going to work our way through the entirety of the psalm. Of David, it said, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands to war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and in whom I take refuge who subdues people under me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures that we have already read and that we're, we're going to continue to read and study here tonight. God, may you open our hearts, maybe you convince our, our minds that there is there's a spiritual battle worth stepping up and stepping in and fighting fighting for, Lord. There, there are strongholds that the enemy has that we, we want to take back. There's victories that that have been won, but there are still fights and victories that still need to be won. And so, God, may, may we realize that we are more than conquerors in Christ. But there's also, we know the battle's won, the war still rages. And so, God, we just pray for your strength here tonight to understand what this psalm is communicating and how relevant it is in this current age. And so we pray for your blessings. 
hope that we see things from you this evening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I just read verses 1 and 2, I want you to see how this is broken up. If you take notes, you want to jot, jot the outline down, I want to give it to you. Hopefully it will be clear. But verses 1 and 2 are, are in essence a psalm of praise. A psalm of praise. And when you think about what makes you worship, or what's the catalyst to worship, sincere worship, maybe, maybe, maybe immediately you think, well, a catchy tune. It's not really what the Bible is going to ask us to, to worship God because there's a catchy tune. I like music, don't get me wrong, but, but worship isn't just responding to a catchy tune or, or, or great lyrics, right? The worship that we see here, what is the catalyst to the psalmist's praise, is the, the, the character God of the attributes of God and the activities of God, right? That hasn't changed. I don't know about you, but when I have some of the most authentic worship, it's when I've come to a realization of who God is and when I'm mindful of what God has done. Isn't that the case? should be the case. That should be the catalyst to worship. That should be what moves you to pause for a minute and to think about how amazing God is and all that he has done. And it's, it's in that moment that I think, I, think, I think God is pleased with his people as they for a moment recognize who he is and what he's doing. And so within this psalm, we see in verses 1 and 2, we have seven attributes of God and then we have three activities of God. That really make up verses 1 and 2. It says that he is the rock, right? He is not a God who has steadfast love, but did you see it? He is steadfast love. It's not just what he did. Here, he says, you are my steadfast love. It's, it's who God is. It's, it's a noun in the Hebrew. It's, it's not a verb. It is, it is what, what points to uh, really the character of God. God is love. Yes, God does love, verb, right? But God is love, noun. So the psalmist here, he's his rock, he's his steadfast love, he's his fortress, he's his stronghold, he's his deliverer, he's his shield, and he is his refuge. I know it says that in him he takes refuge, but what's being implied is that God is the refuge, right? So that's who God is. But also God is busy not just being, but doing. And I thought that was interesting. He says, the psalmist says, you've trained my hands for war. He says, my fingers for battle. And you have subdued the enemies. And this is the activity of God. And this is all bringing up a heart attitude of praise that I think is worth maybe appreciating here for this evening. And so as I think about this, I think with each one of these, these main points in this outline, we have... I think a relevant application, and I would, I would ask you today to think for a moment, even right now, to think for a moment, what is the application here? I think we, we need to recognize that praise rises from a discovery of who God is and what he does. That's the application. Right before we even, let's go to the New Testament, just in your mind for a moment, when we think of the Lord's Prayer, right? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Now, many have memorized it since childhood. I grew up in a Catholic home, and that was one of the the, we, we, I always thought it was a prayer. I never thought it was a Bible memorization, but really it was Bible memorization. And so, um, you know, you know, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What are we talking about? We're talking about the attributes and the activities of God. And I think even within our prayer, we need to intentionally integrate who God is and what he is doing before we even ever get to the request. If you were to ask yourself, what is the purest form of 
prayer, it is, yes, simply a request, right? We are asking something of God. But does it ever just appear as a request in Scripture? No, it's usually packaged very nicely. You know, if I were to give my wife a gift from Walmart and have it in the Walmart bag, I don't think she would appreciate the gift, all right? My wife would much more appreciate if that package was wrapped nicely and there would be some intentionality in the presentation, not just the thoughtfulness of the purchase. So, so too with God, before we ever go to him and start asking, I think it should cause us to pause and think about who he is and what he has done, and we work our way towards that request. You know what it does when we do that? It changes our heart. It maybe even reshapes our prayer to be something that is going to be much more and much more presentable and appropriate to give to God, right? I've had many times where I've started out with an agenda in my prayer, right? Well, I know where I'm going. I know what I want to ask for. I want to get something from God. And I know if I put like a vending machine touch A6, I'm going to get my Snickers bar. If I figure if I go through this pattern, I'm going to get what I want from God. And and God pauses me and starts thinking about who he is and what he's done. And then as I get to the request, all of a sudden that's changed. Sometimes it's not even important anymore. It's so superficial. It's so, so irrelevant to the bigger scheme and the bigger plan. And so I think it's important that we are conscious and recognize who God is and what he's doing. It creates the, the, the start of this psalm, and David is, is appreciating what God is doing. So we have a psalm of praise, right? That's the first two verses. The next two verses, verses 3 and 4, if you've taken notes here, this is the second point. It's the perspective of man. Who are we, right? In light of who God is. And it's so important that we don't lose sight of who we are. And, and, and notice what he says here, verses 3 and 4. It says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And that's what happens when we start getting close to God. We start getting a very clear understanding of who we are. I made a mistake one time when I bought a car at night. You don't ever buy a car at night. It looked great in the dark. <laughs> and I'm a little OCD about you know nice paint jobs and no scratches or dings. And I saw that thing in the daylight and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't undo this purchase. I'm just going to have to live with the mess. But when we start exposing ourselves to light, we don't look so good anymore, do we? I hate those mirrors. My mom has one that lights up and amplifies. My pores are like craters. I'm like, can we turn down the light? And can we, can we not amplify this? I don't want to know myself that well. But when we get exposed to the Word of God, when we get real close to the truth, it's going to do that to us. But it's a healthy reality, right? And we have a clear understanding of who we are in light of who God is. And the psalmist says, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm really nothing. My long existence is like a vapor. Growing up in the Midwest and the Northeast, I was very aware in the wintertime when I exhaled because that, that, that breath was apparent and it was just for a moment before it dissipated and was lost in the, in the cold winter, winter air. And even as the sun rises and creates the shadow and as the shadows lengthen, as the day comes to an end, we are mindful of our brevity, the, the frailty and the shortness of life, right? And that's what the psalmist is saying. Here you are, God. You're all these things and so much more. And this is who I am. And I think it's important to keep a healthy perspective on who we are as we 
spend some time in the presence of God. I think of the New Testament scripture that says, Work for the night is coming when no man shall work. We've got a season. Yes, in that brief existence, we are called to be busy about the kingdom work. But it goes quickly, folks. Ask anybody that's older than you in the, in, in the I was going to say in the room, but in the space here, um, they're going to tell you how quickly life goes. You know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing these young families having babies, and it was just yesterday that I was there myself. How quickly that time transpires. I want you to live each moment. I want you to train your hands to fight, because there is a fight we're fighting for. David says, my fingers were chained for battle. My hands were ready to fight. I, I, I needed to be busy in the time that I have because my life is short and evil is real and there's a purpose and there's a cause, right? What did David say when he took down Goliath? He said, is there not a cause? David was a warrior. He was trained to fight. He was a warrior king. This even is entitled uh, by some as, the, uh, as a royal psalm because it's a psalm of a king. So I think there's incredible relevancy to what we're looking at here. That even though our, our God is great and he has done great things for us, we need to have a grounded perspective on who we are. And, 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 and you know what this does? It moves the psalmist to pray. So he gets a glimpse of who God is, right? He sees clearly who he is. And what is the natural response after spending the time uh, on his own frailty, his own brevity, the, the shortness and the simplicity of his own life? He says, man, I need God's help now more than ever. And that's the third point. It's a prayer for victory. And if you follow with me from, from verses 5 through 8, you'll see what David, here the psalmist, does. These are, in essence, four verses, but there are four specific points that he is making here. And I'll highlight those in a moment. So this is the prayer for victory. We had, the, we had the psalm of praise, we had the perspective on man, now we have the prayer for victory. And he says this, bow the heavens, O Lord, come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash, the, flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me. Deliver me from many waters and from the hand of foreigners. Whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. There are four things that I think are worth noting here. One from each verse. First of all, David is praying that God would make a glorious presentation of himself. Right? Remember Mount Sinai at the base of the mountain when Moses was either up or he was about ready to go up and, 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 and God's glory was just rocking that mountain, you know, with his, his a very visible and evidence presence. They said, uh, Moses, go up and speak for us because we're scared to death. I mean, that's what David is kind of praying here. He goes, make your presence powerfully known so that we are, are completely convinced that, God, you showed up. You know, rend the heavens or bow the heavens, open up the sky and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Do something that only you can do, God. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I pray and I ask God to do something that only you could do, Right? Even though David was trained to fight and he was a warrior, there was a limitation on his capabilities. And even David isn't a very effective warrior. He still needed God to step in and win the war. Maybe David had a few victories in battle, but there were times when it became desperate that God needed to show up, do something big. And that's what we see in verse 6 here, divine judgment. 
you know, sending forth the lightning, scattering them, and arrows to rout them. He said, God, you've got to do this. David, yes, was a trained warrior. And as Christians, we have... I remember, I remember our XO from Recon. He, saw, he, he would always talk about our cape set, our, our, our set of capabilities, right? This is... This is we, we are equipped. We are, as Christians, capable. But there is a limit to what God expects us to do and then where we rely on Him to rain down in a powerful way and convincingly, convincingly be seen in... In the fight, the glorious presentation. There's a divine judgment. Verse seven would be this divine salvation. It says, "Stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me, deliver me from the waters and from foreign hands." David asked God to step in, even though he was a warrior trained for battle, to bring the victory. Then he identifies the enemy, and so this is really the reason. Or not because David is so good, or not that God's people are so good, but the enemy needs to be judged, and God is a righteous and just judge, and their sins need to be punished. Notice what he says, they, what they speak and what they do. They speak lies, and their hands really are marked with falsehood and deception. And so David is moved to pray. But what follows the prayer is another psalm within the bigger psalm. Like verses 1 and 2, we get verses 9 through 11, and here, here's David's heart cry. He goes, this is a promise of praise. It was a commitment of, of, of worship. He said, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon the ten-string uh, ten harp I play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speak lies, and again, this is a repeat from earlier, and whose right hand is at a right hand of falsehood. I like the phrase new song, right? New song. We were sitting right in front of a church entitled that. Do you ever think about the word, the phrase new song? What, what is that implying? What is that communicating? What is it telling us? You know, I think we, we, we can sing old songs, right? And that is the celebration of past victories, right? But I don't know about you, but I want a new song that can celebrate a current victory. You know, I can tell you about my salvation, May 11, 1988, how God delivered me as a young airman in the United States Air Force from, from, from a sinful life separated from him to be rescued into the family and adopted as a child of God, put into his army, a warrior for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a great moment. That was a great period of time. And I can celebrate and sing about that, right? But, but what's my new song? Do you ever think about that? What, what is God currently giving you today? We're celebrating. And that's what David is crying for. It is a promise of praise. It is a hope of victory. And it was a new song, not just of a past victory, but crying out to God in prayer in verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8. And he anticipates the victory. That's faith. In verses 9 through 11, and that's the psalm of victory that we see here. We keep moving, and I think verses 9 and 11 talk about that psalm of victory, but we're going to close the passage here with a prayer for blessing. Verses 12 through 15, prayer for blessing. May our sons, he says, in their youth, 
be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of the palace. May our garneries be full, providing all kinds of produce, and may our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young and suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. We hear about this psalm or this prayer of blessing. What is what is what is the psalmist David asking for? He's asking for this. He goes, I want, I want sons. I praise God I have sons that are that are that are vibrant. You know, like plants full grown. What are plants full grown? Plants full grown are fruitful plants that are a blessing to others and and and, and have a, a presence, right? This is the imagery here. He goes, I want my sons to be to be powerful presence in the community. He says, I want my daughters. And I thought this was an interesting imagery. Corner pillars. Structural pieces in the palace. I think the corner pillars maybe are the most prominent and most most beautiful pillars that could be carved and hold up the structure. So I think it, it, it calls and asks God for, for, for daughters that are beautiful, daughters that are strong. And, you know, I think about the Word of God. Some people have a hard time with the Scriptures thinking it's it's very... It's very um, oppressive to women and, 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 and speaks to only the men. But here, here I see a, a very balanced approach to manhood and womanhood that both have great value to God. And so the psalmist prays for his sons to be, to be, to be full-grown, mature men. And he prays for his daughters to be strong and beautiful, like, 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 like a prized piece in the palace. What, what beautiful imagery for the women that we, we, we see here. And this is the psalmist's prayer. The garneraries are, are barns. Don't, don't get stuck on that word. Fold. May the barns be fold with the produce of the fields. He says the cattle and the sheep just, just having thousands of offspring. I mean, this is just a mark of healthy animals and healthy fields that will be so productive and, and rich with blessing. We also see it. I think this is so relevant today. I couldn't ask for a more relevant verse. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Folks, we, we are in a spiritual warfare. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you its side or, or, or what your opinions or your political position is. But I think when, when we... I was saving this for a minute from now or two from now. But let me just bring this right here. If we were to look at this whole psalm and watch the way that it's tracking, the narrative is this. There is a spiritual war to fight. God has prepared his people for battle. We need to even, in that period of confidence, because we know that God has prepared us for war, there's a humility knowing ultimately we've got to tr trust God to bring the victory. You tracking with me? So what is the consequence of victory? What are the results of victory? In any, any community, usually there is peace and prosperity that follows the victory. So we are wanting these things that are in verses 12 through 15, and if there's a point that you could take home, this would be it. That we first have to see God bring the victory. 
that we recognize that he's trained us to fight, but we need to step up and fight. David could have easily said to his brothers when he brought him lunch that day, saw Goliath in the field and the, and the weird situation he just stepped into. He says, man, good luck, guys. Uh, I'm going to go back and tend some sheep. You know, He could have easily went home, but he knew that there was a cause. He knew there was a reason to fight. He knew that God has trained his hands for war and his finger for battle. He stepped up, grabbed the sling and the stone, and took down the giant, brought the victory and prosperity. Then, bless, he could come to the people of Israel. And that is no different than the spiritual life that we've been called to live. We want these things in verse 12. We want, we want a peaceful household. We want peaceful churches and communities. We want the blessings of God in our life, but they are not coming until the sin in our own lives have been destroyed and God has brought the victory. Because there's a spiritual warfare that we just can't ignore. We can't sweep these things under the rug and pretend that we can, we can go on living successfully with blessings of God. You know, think about it for a moment. It would be foolish to raise children in that sort of environment. I'll give you all the blessings, but you don't need to clean up your mess. You know? You know, they come to you, and they got an attitude, and they throw stampy feet in the cereal aisle because they don't get cocoa puffs. And, and uh, you know what I mean? I mean it really could go off, off the charts wrong. And the parents just give them anything what they want just because, you know, hey, just going to bless the kids. No, we're not going to bless them. I won't bless them until we can sort out the mess of their own lives. So when my kids give me an attitude, and then all of a sudden, an hour later, they start asking me for something, I'm like, wait a minute. We're not to the asking stuff phase, you know? We still got this attitude phase that we got to deal with. You don't speak to your mom that way. I ask you to do something. You didn't do it yet. Um, you, don't, you don't have that attitude. You're not going to speak to me that way. Um, I'm just giving examples. This never happens in our home, um, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. But, you know, how foolish it would be to raise a kid just to give them everything they want and let them just live the way they want, right? That's foolish. Well, God isn't going to do that. So verses 12 to 15, we, we long for the favor of God. It comes as the product of victories won. And let me tell you this. When you get through to 15 and you're enjoying chapter uh, or, or verses 12 to 15, when you're enjoying that, you better not get comfortable. Because this is cyclical, folks. As soon as you get comfortable, as soon as the enemy regroups and regains strength, you know what he's going to do? He's going to hit again. And there's this, this, so what do you do? You go back up to verse 1 and you start this psalm all over again. You know, we, 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 this is life. We win the battle. I don't care if the battle was, if this whole scenario is one day in your life. You woke up, man, your battle was raging. By afternoon, you got the victory. By bedtime, you saw the blessings, all right? Or if this has been a year, five years of your life. And when you ever get to that point in verses 12 through 15 and you begin to enjoy the blessings of God, I'm just saying, don't get comfortable. Because the enemy now sees you incredibly vulnerable. You let the guard down. You know? You, you get lazy in your spiritual walk. You get comfortable and you start enjoying the blessings and you forget about the blesser, the one who gave them to you. The enemy is like waiting. And now it's time to hit again. So what do we got to do? We got to have God prepare our hands for war and our fingers for battle. And we need trust that he'll give us the victory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are.
that your word is forever relevant and this psalm is written thousands of years ago by a warrior king. And yes, maybe David was in a lot of ways talking about the physical battles and the, and, the, and the physical prosperity and blessings that come as a result of victory and peace. But God, there's a spiritual relevance, relevancy of this scripture as well. And I pray that you would speak to the hearts of each person that is here, that their battles need to be won. And they are called to personally engage in those battles, but also trust you for the victory. So God, I pray that through the victories you would be honored and glorified and that we would press on for you, enjoying the blessings, but also being wise that the enemy is still out there. So God, give us give strength day to day. So I think as Paul said, that we need to walk circumspectly with our head on a swivel and our eyes open. Even in the midst of blessings, we need to be ready for battle. So God... Prepare your people. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry and the warfare of the ministry as they, as they fight for you. God, I pray that in the end, you would receive the praise and your work would be advanced. And we would take back the, the enemy, the enemy's ground that belongs to you. We'd see lives changed. Neighborhoods changed. Communities changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've won. So God, we just praise you for the victory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.